taxpayer funds going towards staging them. It'll also take a person with a good fix on global issues and commerce, he continued. Personally, I think you're tailor-made for the job. Think about it. I told him I would. My instincts told me that the job was trouble, if not impossible. I knew some of the inside story of the problems the early organizers were having because several months earlier I played golf with John Argue, a prominent Southern California lawyer and president of the Southern California Committee for the Olympic Games. During the course of our golf match, Argue told me of his great joy in winning the bid in October of 1978, and then his bitter disappointment over the passage only a month later of a city charter prohibiting the use of public funds for the Games. Being privately financed, these Games would be different. Argue knew the Los Angeles organizers would take great risk and would face monumental obstacles in funding and securing the Games. Ginny and I discussed it that night. It might be fun, was Ginny's assessment. Sounds to me like a disaster waiting to happen, I said. What have you got to lose by meeting the people involved, Ginny asked. Ginny was right. There wasn't much harm in pursuing it. I called Corn Ferry and agreed to meet with the LAOOC search panel members one by one. By this time, the Los Angeles Olympic Committee had 22 board members eight of whom were interviewing the candidates and would make their recommendations to the full board. My first meeting was with Justin Dart, who at the time was one of the most powerful leaders in Southern California. The interview took place in his office, where for every question he asked, I asked three. After about 20 minutes, he picked up his phone. I thought he might be calling someone to show me the door. Instead, he called Dick Ferry of Corn Ferry, and he said, I've found the man to run the Olympic Games. Don't interview anyone else. Don't send anyone else to see me. I was shocked. To this day, I don't know why he said it and why he did it. Mayor Bradley was next. He was polite and he was courteous and friendly. But I knew from the beginning I wasn't his choice. Next, I met with Federation of Labor's top official in Los Angeles, Bill Robertson. He kept me waiting for more than an hour. Before the very perfunctory meeting was over, I knew that he was one individual who would never want me to be involved. I met two other downtown business types, Howard Allen of the Southern California Edison and Rod Root of Atlantic Richfield. I'd already met David Wolper, and it hadn't been a friendly encounter. Six years earlier, Wolper had sought fresh money for his International Volleyball Association, and he held a meeting for potential investors at his house. I went to Wolper's meeting, hoping to walk away with a volleyball franchise for San Jose. Wolper and I clashed at every turn. He had a big bucks Hollywood attitude. He was prepared to spend a lot of money. I wasn't. Now, six years later, I entered Wolper's office with some trepidation. Although he didn't commit himself, I believe I had his support. After a pleasant meeting with Yvonne Burke, a former U.S. congresswoman from Los Angeles, whom I knew would support the mayor's choice, I arranged for the final interview. It was to be with Paul Ziffrin, and it turned out to be the most important one. Paul was deeply involved with the Democratic National Committee. He had been friends with presidents and senators and had been one of his party's major fundraisers. The meeting did plant seeds of understanding between us, and I left feeling he was someone I wanted to know better. The interview process was finally over. The idea of doing something so dramatically different had stimulated me, but realistically, I sensed I wasn't what they had in mind. On Monday, March 26, I was in my office when my secretary, Sherry Cockle, told me Paul Ziffrin was on the line.
Petey said, I want to be the first to tell you you were elected president of the Los Angeles Olympic Organizing Committee, and I've been elected chairman. Ziffrin and I met. We shook hands on a simple agreement. I would run the games with full authority for all personnel and all expenditures as the chief executive officer, and he, as chairman of the board, would conduct the board meetings and serve as a buffer, keeping the politicians and special interest groups at bay and out of the day-to-day operation. It seemed like an easy and fair division of labor. After that meeting, I got together with Hank Rieger and Renee Henry, two volunteers handling the committee's public relations. They had scheduled a 10 a.m. news conference for the next day, at the end of which I got my first taste of Olympic planning. A beaten-up cardboard box arrived by messenger from City Hall. There was no note attached to it, only a crayon scroll on the side that read, All the records for the Los Angeles Olympic Games. I was born on September 2, 1937, in Evanston, Illinois, to Victor and Laura Uberoth. My sister Jill was then six years old. The Depression was ending, and my father had become a traveling salesman of aluminum products for various companies. He'd work an area, tap out the market, and then move on. He was good at it. But the constant relocation was difficult on my mother. She was very ill with cancer and died of leukemia in 1941. My first job was delivering newspapers. By the time I was 14 years old, I was a supervisor of 10 delivery boys, including my younger brother John, for the Burlingame Shopping News. I was offered a job at a local children's home, 12 acres, when I was 15. It was a great chance to be independent. I had my own cabin, there were great sports facilities, and on top of it all, I got paid. I liked the kids. My goal then was to become a coach. I worked and lived at 12 acres throughout high school. And I vividly remember my graduation when 28 12-acre kids stood in the stands and cheered as I walked across the field to receive my diploma. It made me feel warm all over, as though a whole second family were there. It was also at graduation when my high school swim coach introduced me to Ed Rudloff, the San Jose State water polo coach. The introduction paid off when I attended San Jose State the next year. It was the fall of 1955. I fell in love with water polo. Over the next two years, I became better at the sport and would have tried out for the Olympic team in 1960 had not other things happened in my life, the most important of which was meeting Virginia May Nicholas, the daughter of a Long Beach baker. That summer in 1958, between my junior and senior year, I went to Hawaii with Dick Sargent, a college friend and later a business associate. The airline contacts I made that summer in Hawaii paid off later on. I managed to swing a job during the school year for an association of non-scheduled airlines, which represented such noteworthy airlines as the Portland Rose, Standard Pink Cloud, United States Overseas Airways, Curry Air Transport, Miami International Airlines, and Blatt's Airways. I returned to Hawaii to work over the Thanksgiving holidays and stretched a one-week trip into two. That Christmas, the association paid me $5,000 to represent its interest at the Monterey Airport. Two years later, an independent airline owner, Kirk Kikorian, hired me to run the Hawaiian end of his company. Long-distance relationships weren't for me. Jenny's father, Nick Nicholas, didn't like spending a fortune on my collect calls to his daughter. By August, I'd made up my mind, and I sent Jenny an engagement ring that had belonged to my mother. I attached a note with it that said... Will you marry me? 
The next month, we were married in Long Beach, and a day later, we left for Hawaii. We had $500 between us. As manager of Kikorian's Los Angeles Air Service, later renamed Trans International Airlines at my suggestion, I sold commercial flights from the mainland to Hawaii. With the exception of Dick Sargent, I hired only Hawaiians, who took great pride in their community. And before long, we had captured most of the business between the mainland and the islands. I was learning the importance of having people familiar with the territory on my side. When Kikorian decided to beef up the operations on the West Coast, he asked me to return to California to run the commercial operations at its Los Angeles headquarters. After three happy years in Hawaii, Ginny and I moved to Encino, California, where we remained for the next 22 years. I believe for a 24-year-old I had considerable business experience, enough now to venture out on my own. I started Travel Consultants, Inc. over the phone from our tiny San Fernando Valley apartment. I established an opening wedge in the marketplace and began pursuing representation of small international airlines and steamships seeking U.S. business. Dick Sargent rejoined me, and we began looking for such carriers as Alaska Airlines, Garuda Indonesian Airways, South Pacific Airlines, Hawaiian Airlines, and Ethiopian Airlines. Kikorian continued to be an advisor and a friend. In 1963, he had been counseled to take his company public and asked me if I would be interested in investing in it. I not only invested in some shares, but I followed his lead and took my own company public a couple of years later. I began using my company stock and funds to buy small travel agencies around the country. When Ask Mr. Foster Travel Service, an 80-year-old travel business, went on the market in 1972, I snapped it up. By the mid-70s, the business, now called First Travel Corporation, had 1,500 employees and over 200 offices around the world, and it was grossing more than $300 million a year.